Greetings, Rays community. Brent coming in live from McGregor, Iowa, and I'm thrilled to welcome Courtney Searles, who's the Vice President for Development and Alumni Relations at American University, who grew up just west of here. Welcome, Courtney. Yay, Iowa. Thank you, Brent. It's good to be with you. But Courtney has traveled uh, far beyond Iowa at this point, has been coast to coast, literally, and we look forward to learning more about your journey. And as you know, in my recent episodes, I've been wanting to learn more about uh, your own academic journey, your educational experience, and specifically what led you to Iowa State University. Take me back to junior year of high school. Who was that, Courtney? What was she into over in Iowa Falls? And uh, was it an easy decision to become a cyclone? Yes, it was an easy decision to become a cyclone. But it, uh, music was the central theme. And from probably eighth grade, I had a vocal teacher in Ames. And so I would once a month, sometimes once a week, drive to Ames from eighth grade on to take vocal lessons at Iowa State University. So it led me there for college and a degree in music, which clearly I never used. Like I said in our prep, we never know where these podcasts are going to go. I have a confession to make, which is I have been on the fence. I really, people often ask if you weren't doing Evertrue, what would you be doing? What's your dream job sort of thing? I love my job, but I do have dreams of being a country music star. And so I have gone as far as booking uh, exploratory vocal lessons, but I've never done one. And so make the case. And are there any freebies for folks who are listening who've also thought about vocal lessons, maybe just wanting to step up karaoke game? Why are vocal lessons worth it? Oh, my good. Well, first of all, everybody can sing. I believe that everybody can sing and it doesn't matter how it sounds. It matters how it feels. So you get a, get a couple of good techniques to make sure you're not hurting your voice and that you're breathing right. And you can go from singing in the shower to singing karaoke to singing in a band, which by the way, I'll put in a plug at American university. We have a band called the artifacts which includes myself as the, the fundraiser. The, wow. uh, the provost of the university is the guitar player. The athletic director is the drummer. The head of the museum is the uh, male singer. And then a friend of ours plays the bass. So you never know when you're going to pull that old music spirit out. Well, you earlier said it has nothing to do with your job. It sounds like it has a whole lot more to do with your job uh, based on the artifacts. Uh, that's incredible. And so uh, tell me about the undergraduate music program at Iowa State. Any highlights during that experience uh, that, that just come to mind during your, your time in Ames? Yeah, I will say um, the hardest thing about the program was fantastic. And so were the people in the program. They were very serious about going on to uh, have serious music careers. And I studied opera. But as it turns out, if you're going to keep your voice well prepared for opera, you might not want to be the most extroverted person in the world going out every night and doing other kinds of activities, <laughs> which included for me getting involved in all things Iowa State because I loved Iowa State. And that's what led me to fundraising, I think, looking back, 
because I was involved in the ambassadors. I was involved in the senior class council, which now I understand our role in planning activities like senior week was really to draw in and cement the relationship of seniors to the university so that when they became alumni, they would stay active and ultimately give. So it was subtly pounded into me. Um, and I loved that experience and drew on it later when I was a teacher in a high school and the principal came to us and said, uh, it was a private school and said, the archdiocese who runs the school is telling us we need to, to hire a fundraiser. Is anyone interested? And most people said, that is the last thing I'd wanna do. And I raised my hand. I love it because like most people who studied music at Iowa State University, you immediately moved to Playa del Rey, California upon graduation. Just like all your classmates, do what everyone else is doing, right? As you do. I will admit, I was a lovely place, but my brother moved out to Hermosa Beach, actually, uh, when I was in college. And I went to visit, and there was a moment, I think, my junior year in college when I said, and I live in Iowa, why? Um, now I understand. When I think about what it cost to buy a home in California, I realize all the benefits of Iowa, but I did follow him there. My brother moved to Santa Monica, and so uh, he just recently left after about a decade and so I would have those periodic jolts of, you know, why doesn't everyone uh, live here? Every place has its challenges, but you did have uh, a really neat run in California, which included uh, essentially, it sounds like almost a startup development role in the high school context, St. Bernard High School. And then along the way, uh, decided to pursue a master's in educational administration just down the road uh, at LMU. That's exactly right. You're pretty good. You've done your, your research. Uh, either that or you found a diary. Yeah, I was teaching in a Catholic school and the local Catholic university was nearby and we had a wonderful opportunity. And anyone working, I have to say, anyone working in education, if you work for a place where you can have tuition benefits of some way, what a wonderful perk of the job that we should never take for granted. And in this case, the archdiocese offered a discount. The university offers a dis, uh, offered a discount for people who were working in a Catholic school setting like I was. And that really allowed me an opportunity to drive after work over 10 minutes to get my degree at Loyola Marymount University. And I fell in love with the place and got to know the development people there and uh, recognized that higher ed development was an exciting career path with a, a lot of opportunity. And so you had been doing development in a very startup, small context. LMU has a real organization. You're going down the educational administration master's path. When you started that program, did you think it would be more of an on-ramp or accelerant to a career in fundraising, or was it too early to say at that point? Um, too early to say. I, I did, which turned out to be a good idea. My program was educational administration. So for one point, I thought maybe I would be interested in being a high school principal. I knew that, that as much as I loved teaching, um, the, confine, the confines of the classroom bothered me. I, I tended to be the person, and, and those of you in development alumni relations will understand this, who um, every time there was a, uh, I was interested in everything. And every time there was an opportunity to be on a committee that looked at the whole, um, that was interesting to me. And, and I think that's, 
I think I realized I was more on the administrative side, on that big picture side, than the individual be in the classroom and to, to instead support the people who are in the classroom. I will, you, you make me laugh when you, or I laugh when I think about how I transitioned from St. Bernard to the, the university. Because when I first got the job at St. Bernard, the principal really took a chance and somebody who just said, I'll do it. And sent me to, sent me to a week long development conference. And I learned it was drinking from a fire hose, but I learned the basics. And I came back with what I thought was a good plan to get us started. And he looked at me like I was nuts. And he said, I was thinking you could run the carnival. So, and that's what they did for fundraising back in the Catholic school days. And, you know, maybe a good lesson for anyone here is I did run the carnival the first year. I'm terrible at it, but I did because the, the point is I had to get, I had to understand the nuts and bolts and the expectations and go through those experiences in order to be able to say, we just spent this amount of time and this amount of effort for this outcome. But what if we did it this way? It's more cost effective. It, it gets us to the better, better objective. So it was a good experience. Many of our guests have talked about the professionalization of fundraising. And I think you know, carnival on one end of the spectrum and predictive analytics and modeling and really trying to get more data-driven on the other, we've definitely come a long way in, in a short period of time. I am curious when you think back on your time at LMU, you were there from 99 to 2004. And whenever I talk to fundraisers who were in the same place during that period, um, especially in California, where in 99 were dot-com boom, what a wild time. In 01, it's dot-com bust plus 9-11. And then by 04, it's real estate rally. Uh, things are on the uh, upswing again. Um, but you sort of had uh, the same role, or at least you're trying to accomplish the same maybe broad objectives during a time where there was real economic sort of fluctuations. And that's sort of similar to what we've experienced over the last year or two in a different um, way. But what do you think back on when you think about that sort of boom and bust cycle of the late 90s, early 2000s? That is such a great point. And one I think I take for granted in how the experience of that time even helped me recently when we made decisions during this pandemic to launch a campaign and to have a successful fundraising year. It's a great point. You know what I learned? I was pretty young when we were there, when we went through the, the exuberance of the dot-com and 9-11. In, in the end, what I saw from all of that, it, it's twofold. One is, um, it, it's like the stock market. You keep building the relationships. Don't follow the ups and downs. Relationships take place over time. And what's important to people take place, people still have money. Um, at least some set, uh, you cannot ride those waves. You have to be sensitive to people's individual situations. But if you have enough and broad enough based relationships, um, you can continue throughout. And I think that that's very true. You, it, it's it's the, just the way we talk about rankings. Never say, look at us, we've done a great job. Our rankings are here and this is why we did it all. And then when the rankings go down saying, we couldn't help it. It, I, I think it's either way, You've, you have to, even during those times, you have to do everything that you're doing in the environment to keep doing forward and doing your best work. Um, 
an interesting piece about that. And instead of using excuses, um, interesting piece about that from, from my LMU experience, you know, we were really in a, in a startup mode to some extent in the late 1999. I think there was a new president, there's a new vice president who understood that most of our fundraising was foundation-based and it wasn't sustainable, or at least we couldn't grow if we just kept doing the same thing over and over again. And so we moved at that time, we were moving from a model of very centralized to a hybrid with schools. And that's a huge change. So that's the other thing I learned, what, what it takes to educate and change culture and kind of change management. But one thing that any of us, and I, I worked with wonderful people during that time, any of us I think would look back and see is that we told in the 1999s when everyone is feeling flush, we said to the board, um, we're gonna position ourselves for a campaign, but we have to build out the infrastructure. And to build out the infrastructure, we're gonna need X amount of dollars. And they invested a lot in us. And the good news is it was the best experience I've ever had in terms of really looking how you build an organization and all the components that have to go with it and hiring great people. But we said, give us two years to get ready for the campaign. In two years, the board said, where's the money? And, and what I learned from watching that is yes, indeed, you have to be honest as a leader in saying, I need these resources, but you can't say, First, I will make the organization perfect, and then I will raise money. You have to do both things at the same time. You have to evolve things together. You have to manage expectations, and sometimes you have to work incrementally. That was the, that was the best lesson that I learned from those times. Well, and some of what I'm, I'm thinking about is even, you know, the, when you think about the tried and true financial management techniques, um, there is a pretty strong set of supporters out there who would recommend dollar cost averaging, continue to invest consistently over time, not trying to get caught up in the waves, not trying to time the market. And even as you look at hedge fund performance, some of the smartest people uh, in the world, it is really hard for most hedge funds to beat the S&P by, by their very nature. And so what I'm hearing you say is, you know, maybe there's a similar rule in philanthropy, which is don't try to time the market, um, just like your donors, for the most part, shouldn't be trying to time the market um, as it relates to personal wealth management. And you got to experience that during that boom, bust, boom period. Uh, but then you uh, went to the University of Southern California at a period of tremendous growth for that institution, but also back into a major boom cycle leading right up to the financial crisis and then having to power through that. And so I'm just curious when you think about the growth mode that you all were in at USC, what stands out? Yeah, first of all, in, in some ways it was no different. It was just a different magnitude. When I first went to USC, they were coming off, uh, they were on the rise. They were coming off a really successful campaign, $2.8 billion, which at the time was a huge amount of money. But the ambition for the next campaign was six billion. And I think the lesson learned there is you don't just keep doing the same thing the same way and expect to get double the money. You have to sit down and look at, um, you have to look at a strategy. You have to look at what you're doing that works. You have to look at what you're doing that needs to go better or that needs to be done differently. And at USC, I mean, this is all my opinion, right? So if anyone's listening from USC, this is, this is how I, what I took from it and how I saw it. Um, 
the the two point eight billion dollar campaign well executed, but it was a it was a particular strategy. And and I'm a big believer that there's not a right and a wrong answer. If that's the case, if it was that easy, all of us could be leaders. It's you got to look at the the times and the strategy and what's going to be best for the university. And the strategy of the two point eight billion was to say we're going to have a group of prospects that are completely centralized and don't you touch those prospects because the president and the VP are going to lead that period and nobody else have anything to do with it. And everybody else, you can do whatever you want as long as you follow these rules. Now, obviously I'm being overly to make an, to make a point, but that was, it was more centralized on the top. Everybody else just go for it. And they grew that way because there was autonomy in the schools and there was careful, well done strategy with those top prospects in order to get to 6 billion. The provost who became the president understood that we cannot scale if we're not working in a more coordinated fashion to try to maximize some of those relationships instead of let every school decide the method in which they will do fundraising. There was still autonomy, but we had to make sure that we were looking at it from the whole. And one of the greatest experiences that I had at USC, because I was the interim lead, um, knowing there was another boss coming in, but my real role was to try to get us pointed in the direction of working less like a loosely held federation and more like a group that could work together. It was a great lesson. And it's why I, th I think it's such a reason why they raised $6 billion is because they did it in more coordinated fashion. Can I ask you a question just about the reveal of that $6 billion number and sort of how that was done to the team, recognizing that 2.8 itself was a tremendous success? And also, Courtney, why not a $5 billion target or a $7 billion target? How much of it is precision and feasibility work leading to an estimation of $6 billion versus just going for it? Um, wow, putting me on the spot here. It, there was a lot and of just also what you're, you know, comfortable sharing and so forth, but that's just something that I, I really right. continue right. to think about. Yeah, it's just how do so, you ultimately pick a number? Yeah, and, and actually, and maybe I'll use that to share my own philosophy. And it's easy for me to talk about this because I have so much respect for every place that I've ever worked. But I will say that it, I'll start with where my philosophy is, which is you can have great experience. You can know your business, but don't go into every job thinking you just take that experience and plop it into your new place because that is never the case. And so the answer always varies. Although you draw on best practice, you draw on experience. The answer always varies based on that community. USC was primed for a $6 billion campaign for a number of reasons. It did not do a feasibility study. Um, but the, the temperature of the campus, the bold, the, the support of the board, the bold nature of the president at the time, the way that the place was resourced and growing was enough indicator that um, the belief was $5 billion was a natural next step. $6 billion was enough, enough of a stretch to match the bold ambition of that president's vision. So it was a little bit of gut that was right for the environment um, with, 
data that could at least back it up. So that was a different situation. I would never have done that at American University, not because we don't have outstanding support from the board and phenomenal leadership, but it's not where the organization was. You've got to, you've got to understand, you know, our organization at the time had not had a campaign for years. When I, when I came in, they finished their campaign five years before, but um, it happened in a presidential transition and people lost confidence. They've lost confidence. They didn't believe in their gut. They didn't think we had the prospects. So first of all, part of the job as the leader is to be able to show the data that, no, you do have what you need. You have it. I can show you in data. And then to, to hold up a mirror and, and, and to start to say, you can do this, but in order to do it, we need to do X, Y, and Z. So for American University, the feasibility study was really, really important. Now, interestingly enough, the feasibility study came up $50 million shorter than what we ultimately went with. And nothing made me happier as a leader because it showed that we were getting past that. You know, in the beginning, it was, I don't know, can we do this? In the end, it was, what? We can do more than that. So there's psychology and science. That's a long answer, Brent. Did that help? I love it. And and so you had this $6 billion record-setting experience at USC. You've already hinted at the move back to the East Coast. And at the same time, I just have to ask, uh, when you reflect on the experience going from a 20,000-employee University of Southern California to a relatively small nonprofit being museum, uh, in Washington, D.C., taking a step away from the pure education vertical, um, probably not an easy decision. And I'm, I'm just curious, there may be other uh, folks listening who have only been in the higher ed sector who have thought about making the move to another vertical. And I know you can't generalize too much, but what stands out from, from that experience? Um, call me if you're thinking about it. It is, and I don't mean that in a negative way to say, oh my gosh, I got there and realized this is so different. I'm actually glad I had the experience, but I would go in eyes wide open if you're changing sectors. And not because it's so completely different, but because you it forces you to ask yourself what's important to you. Why do you love your job? And I mean, just to give you some, I'll, I'll give you the what was hard for me in that, that transition and what I learned and I am so grateful for. Um, but the hardest part is realizing that um, I, I do like, I'm a builder. I do like the complexity of a large organization. Um, I especially see in a lot of nonprofits, you're looking, your key thing is looking for budget fill. That every year you're trying to make X amount to run. And th that's, there's exciting work in that. It may feel kind of transactional, but it's exciting knowing that you can go to that donor and say, if we don't do this, we cannot keep our doors open. That is, I, I appreciate people who can do that. I think I'm, I am more um, excited about what development in an academic setting. I mean, we do have the, the budget piece and the annual giving, but I love the major gift work. I love the long-term relationship, how, how philanthropy is a tool in the toolkit of the overall higher education business model. And it's very different in those two different sectors. And that was hard. Um, let me tell you what I loved though, or what I learned that I do not regret. 
first of all, I was in a new city and um, Los Angeles and Washington DC are two very different places. Although they both have celebrities of sort, they're just different kinds of celebrities, right? There are similarities. But the museum was a place that was in the center of everything at the time. It was a center for politicians were there, journalists were there. Um, so I got to know the city and what philanthropy was like in that city at the time. And that was really, really important in working with the university, even though it's a national university. Second of all, it was a, um, the, the place had never, they hired me, I think, because they saw the pedigree of USC as opposed to asking the questions about what, how, what's your philosophy of fundraising? What can you bring to the table? And I think there was a thought of, oh, USC, they raise a ton of money. Hire the person who raises money from USC and they'll bring their people with them. Of course, it doesn't work that way. So it required a ton of education of the board, of others. And that's something that's a part of a lot of our jobs. And sometimes we take for granted that you go to an organization and you just assume everybody knows what you're talking about. Try going to an organization where you say you want to do a wealth screening and they say, what? Or that's a different skill set. So I learned that. The third thing that I learned was um, for American University in particular is the museum was a very interesting place trying to find what its mission was for donors to understand why should I care if my door, if the doors close tomorrow, why should I care? My First Amendment rights will still be here. It really forced me to fine tune the the importance of things like policy, the importance of things like the, the First Amendment, journalism, why it's important, because that translated to the particular strengths of American University. Love it. And so as you then took the leadership role at American University in 2015, I just have to ask, Yes. Put you on the spot a little bit here, but what were you most excited about when you took the role and what were you most concerned about? And then I'm going to ask you the same question as we sit here in 2021. What are you most excited about now and what are you most concerned about? It's a great, it's a great question. You know, I was most excited. First of all, I was excited to get back to academia. Second of all, my former boss at USC, the senior vice president, Al Cecchio, had run American University as the VP years ago. And when the job became available, he called me and said, you know, that place has so much potential. If I could go back anywhere with what I've learned now, what I know now, it's a place I'd wanna go because somebody with the right skill set can really take it to the right level. That still fires me up. Um, and he's right, it's such a great place. So that, that, ex that excited me. Um, obviously the challenges, I think that's the question, what excited me, what were the biggest challenges? The challenges at that time um, were right at getting the place to um, believe that they could be, uh, believe that they could be the potential that we all saw. Um, the other challenge, and it was worth it for anyone who's in this experience, is I was hired knowing that, confidentially knowing, but I can say it now, that there would be a presidential transition within at least two years. And um, so I knew that there was a risk that the new president coming in might not like my style or might um, want to bring their own person that they're used to. 
Um, but the board was behind me and I, it was worth the chance because I realized in the end that if you're doing good and solid work, it doesn't matter who, it, it does matter. But I trusted that the board would choose that we would work together and find someone because they are just as, as vested in that relationship between the development person and the president being being close. So anyway, that was a risk. I was worried about it. Couldn't have gone better. My boss is phenomenal. Um, what am I most excited about now? It's, it's true. It's true. The place has extraordinary potential and is emerging at a time that the work that it's always done is more important than ever. The way that the university thinks about uh, inequality, social justice, um, things like climate change, uh, things like diversity, equity, inclusion, all of those pieces, policy, health policy. My boss is the former head of health and human services. Suddenly those things were always important, but they're at the front and center of needs for society. And so I feel like we're starting to reach our potential at the time that the world needs that potential to be reached. That's what excites me the most. The other thing that excites me the most, and this is easy to say, is I just, I'm, I'm working with a great senior team. There, it's a group of people who have just, we've been through like everyone, a really, really difficult time. And their attitude is never, everything's an obstacle, nor is it that we're all vulnerable, but we take that vulnerability and every day say, we can do this, we'll figure out a way. So that, that's what's most exciting. What worries me the most is like a lot of places where, I, I shouldn't say that, where AU has extraordinary potential and our ambitions are huge, but our infrastructure is still catching up. And at a time that people are coming out the pandemic, it's easy to say that the grass is greener everywhere else. It's easy to say, I am so tired. Maybe I will just go somewhere where I can start fresh and it won't feel like this lift that we've all committed to do because we want to reach this potential. That worries the most, me the most. And I understand that we have to keep people feeling, um, we have to be flexible enough to work with what we're all going through coming out of the pandemic. Um, whether it's just stress or tired or health concerns, but still, I still believe that the best morale comes from believing that you are doing something that couldn't be done without you. Um, and, 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 and really staying focused and, and wanting to, to carry this fight out. So. Really well said. And I would ask, given the intersection of those themes and strengths that American University has invested in uh, for decades and the broader context we're operating in that intersect, it that just intersects so well with some of those strengths. Does it mean that your constituency is more than just alumni, which is always the case, but is it even more so the case given your mission or does it mean you just need to be more laser focused on the alumni community and make sure that community understands how well American University is positioned in this context? Because I could see you sort of selling that vision or mission well beyond your community, but then you're almost like the nonprofit who could theoretically have everyone as a donor, but no one is a donor. So how do you balance that? What a great question, Brent. This is fun, by the way. You were right. Um, you know, it's interesting. I do think that we can reach beyond our alumni because 
and, and, and part of our campaign that just launched in May is called Change Can't Wait. And I mean, pretty self-explanatory, right? And when you, when the idea there is that it's not a rah-rah support your alma mater kind of a positioning, it is a, it, it is, we are people who are, we're change makers, we're people, uh, whether it's the alumni, the students, the faculty who say we accept the challenge and change can't wait. And if that's the case, you don't have to even be an alum. You, it's anybody who believes I can't just sit back and take this. I'm worried about X and this university is addressing those issues. That's the good news. But to your point, um, if you don't recognize that, that two, two points, number one, if you don't recognize that those who are most vested in your success are going to be the best prospects, um, you may spread yourself too thin. And sometimes that is a, a misnomer for people who are not in our profession, right? They think, talk to Bill Gates. I mean, I'm, I'm just using that as an excuse, but it's like, there's a rich guy who cares about what you're doing. Well, and I hear you of, have, you know, some connections there potentially, but it doesn't exactly. mean. Right. Bad example, bad example, because we do. Yes, of course, my boss was the, the number two there. But um, but it's this point that, that yes, people care. They care a lot, a lot of things. But the, finding the intersection of where people care and where they're vested in seeing this particular university carry that out, that they want to give through this university to their cause because they are vested is the best place for us to start. That doesn't mean we should ignore those other pieces. So that that is that, and that's one thing that we have to talk about a lot. If you start to just stab at anything and you don't you don't use your analytics, you don't use your data to say, look, we're only we're a staff of 85 people. There's only so much that we're going to do here. We've got to make the best possible decisions of where we're turning our time and resources. Well, the other point, hmm, I was just saying that note. We often think about that even in the context of. Uh, the annual fund or defining the giving pyramid or trying to um, shore up uh, analytics is the number of times that we'll speak with partners in the space who are saying, you know, we're really focused on acquisition. It, it sort of pains me every time I hear that because if that's really what you're focused on by default, whatever energy you're spending in that acquisition is not energy and time and money being spent on retaining or reactivating recent supporters. And then furthermore, of those recently lapsed folks who are the absolute highest net worth, the most engaged, that are on the cusp year in, year out of being a supporter. And I get that theoretically we want to go to acquisition, but never at the expense of the people that are on the cusp already. And I sort of feel like that's the same when you think about, do we go even further beyond now to not only people who've never supported us, but they aren't alumni, they're really not a, a natural constituency, yet it seems like maybe it's the grass is greener or right. there's just, I don't know, hope, but I feel like we do that at the expense of our core supporters that are really our, our swing donors, if you will, on again, off again in the middle. I have so many thoughts about that. I don't even know where to start. I think you are hundred percent right. And, and, and sometimes you have to even educate um, the board or the president or others who just think, I I've heard these words, let's do acquisition, it's important. And you really have to step back and say, what are we trying to achieve? What are we trying to accomplish? And what is the best way to get there? And I, we, we, our senior team says this a lot. We know that we have committed to raising $500 million for this university. And we want to get that done by May, 2024. Um, we, it's not just about getting to the dollars. It is, first of all, where those dollars are going to go. 
because we're the campaign is supporting the goals of the strategic plan. So that's that's number one. But the second thing is we're not going to getting to five hundred million dollars is not where it stops because the next person and the next campaign has to help build upon that. And I feel like if we haven't done the work in this campaign in getting a solid core, figuring out who the best people are to get us to that 500 million, really developing those relationships so they continue and they grow with us and they take leadership roles with us. And then we continue to move out to additional groups. We'll, we'll miss out. If we just try to stab a little bit of everywhere, we'll miss out. And we may make the goal, but we aren't setting the place up for the next 10, 20, 30 years. Yeah. Um, I, almost, no I would almost love to hear somebody say, hey, look, we're not focused on acquisition at all. We are just going to spend the next year or two or three or four trying to retain or reactivate everybody who's given in the last four years. And we're not going to go anywhere beyond that. But I feel like then the, the interpretation would be, well, you can't ignore right. that 80% of your giving pyramid. You can't turn your backs on everyone else. And I think it just ends up being, um, we, we just so often just have to go too broad because we just have to. We have to serve everyone, young, old, rich, poor, domestic, global. And that's just a real challenge for a lot of our partners. Well, and, and, I, and I have to say, everyone, the, the constituency in general deserves an opportunity to participate if they want to. So I have, a, I have an obligation and a communication strategy to at least be able to make sure that I'm doing something to communicate to the broad alumni and to not only to communicate what we're doing and why we're doing it, but to invite them to participate. And to make them feel comfortable if that participation is $10 instead of $10 million. That's the, that's the communication strategy about it and the building part of it. But when it really comes down to the money that we need to raise, we really have to look at the science of what are we, how are we going to get to $500 million? And it's a choice. Some places, it, you know, you can't just fill in a campaign pyramid off the internet and said, here's the, the, the rhythm. It all depends on what levels of gift you need and why, what your, what your uh, base looks like, and what you believe you can do to also raise confidence. For us, we launched our campaign virtually, and it was a tough decision. We first took down the launch in October of 2020 because the board said, let's, in, in April of 2020, said, oh my goodness, the economy is going to crash. Let's be sensitive to what the environment is like. The day we were supposed to launch, we had already gotten to the number that we were supposed to launch at. And the board said, do you think you can do this? And we said, yes. And so we launched virtually, but in that launch, the idea wasn't try to get 135,000 people to watch a launch. It was recognizing that there was a broad communication strategy, but we had identified about 1,100 people who we knew we needed to touch in some way or another, because those core 1,100 people are gonna make it, both those who have already given and those who we believe will give we're going to really make up our success. Anyway, sorry. Gordon, I'd love to get your perspective on launching a campaign virtually. Um, and in particular, maybe get your comments around um, efficiency or your own role relative to what it would have been had we been in a full travel mode. And I ask that because in my world, um, I don't run capital campaigns, but I have had to raise capital for Evertrue. And 
it actually feels pretty similar to raising a capital campaign. You've got a set of prospective investors, you've got an ask amount, you've got a strategic plan, you need to build the relationships, inspire people, and then ultimately get them to yes um, or no. The difference being it's probably a little bit more binary. It's yes or no, um, as opposed to maybe at this level or that. What I have found in our own world of investor relations uh, these days, post-pandemic, mid-pandemic, the ability to talk to 10 different investors in a eight-hour day and not get on a plane and not have to book a whole bunch of hotels and not have to go out to a whole bunch of dinners. There's a part of me that is like, yeah, you can't maybe build the same relationship. But I, I literally have days where I feel like I've been able to do what would have taken weeks or months to accomplish. What would, I mean, is it the same in your world? And as we sort of move back into this, can I travel? Can't I travel? Should I travel? I mean, were you, were you able to do more efficiently yeah. or do you feel like it, it harmed the relationship not being able to be physically present? Yep. So I jotted down three thoughts. So first of all, in terms of launching the campaign, were we able to launch a campaign successfully? We hit the goal that we wanted to launch. So yes. Um, but one thing that I will say is it made more important than ever answering the question, what is the objective of a public launch? What is the objective? Because in the beginning, people just think, we can't launch a campaign we're, uh, first if we're not gonna have the balloons drop and the big fancy piece. That was number one. Number two is, so then everyone decided we have to do it virtual. There has to be a party. And then in January, I watched the Golden Globes and that was all it took to say, people are tired of this in January. How are they gonna feel on May 12th when, a lot of people are vaccinated and the weather is nice. And so we had to change our mindset to say, is a public launch really about a big party? Or is a public launch really about saying, this is who we are, what we're doing? So that, that's one thing I will say. And that's why I think that piece worked. On the other piece, and this is good and bad. Um, we had our third, we, we had our best year ever in unrestricted giving his, in the history of the university. We had our third best fundraising year only against two years where there was a $30 million art gift and an $18 million real estate gift. So in terms of pure fundraising, it was the best year. The good news is that would tell me that you can still do this business. On the other hand, we couldn't do it that way forever because what I noticed is relationships that had already existed where there was already a comfort level were pretty easy to continue, whether it was Zoom or phone. Getting new people engaged was harder. And I think that's where we're going to benefit coming out and being able to do a little bit more face-to-face. -face. But my third point is, I think more than ever, the desire for substantive, concise, thoughtful engagement is going to be paramount. Forget spending tons of money on big dinners where there's not a real goal or an objective or events where everybody feels good and has a cocktail and the president speaks, there's got to be more substantive. Why am I spending my time with you? I, I could not agree more. And I think um, one of the themes we've heard throughout the pandemic, and I'm going to be very curious to see what it looks like one year from now, is the ability as a leader in the context of a campaign to engage oh. 
other stakeholders and create a more holistic experience for the donor was remarkable. Being able to the president join in a Zoom meeting that they never could have done in the field, getting the dean involved, the athletic director, and maybe they drop in for seven minutes during a Zoom, share regards or, or make a comment, let the donor know that they care. The efficiency to create that whole team around a donor I don't know how we, I mean, maybe there's a future where you're, fi you're physically present as a fundraiser and now you're just bringing somebody in via Zoom. Maybe that's a hybrid approach. But um, I feel like as a donor, if I could have 15 quality minutes with the president in a virtual context versus being on the edge of the room when the president shares the remarks and then maybe getting a handshake, I'd much rather have the 15 minute concise, clear, one-on-one -on -one engagement. Did you experience that as part of your, your um, last year here? Absolutely, and, and of course, it also was so helpful in getting us outside of this mindset of all, all events are gonna only be Washington DC area people. I mean, that way we could, we could bring in people from other areas and have this great conversation, whether it was California, here, wherever. So yes, but I would also say and this takes time and, 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 and it's gonna be a shift, but I think the more substantive questions, work, problems to work out, activities that we give groups of stakeholders to do, even if it's a, just a conversation where we say, we need your feedback from the external perspective on what you're seeing in X and actually using that feedback or actually um, bringing people in when, uh, whether it's trustees, because we're trying to, um, we're, we're working on something with student belonging and we need the students to meet with different people. We need to give people more things to do. And that takes time. And it's really easy for people to say, I don't have time to do that. But what they don't understand is if you take the time to both, if you do it right, you do two things. Number one, the person actually helps you with something you need. Number two, they are so vested in your success, totally. but then they want to be a part of making it happen. And that, that's the shift that I'm seeing we need to continue to go through at the university. It reminds me a little bit of the broader evolution from mass engagement, mass campaigns down to more specific uh, interest-based campaigns, whether it's shifting from a broad reunion or a class affinity down to who am I today and what I really care about. And so e even in my case, it's, do I wanna be a part of the class of 2004 or do I wanna be a part of the Boston Brown alumni tech CEO lunch, which Brown has done events like that. And there's just no comparison in the level of turnout and engagement, but it's tricky because the smaller you make it, the more things you need to do. And it's great if you can sort of say, well, we had reunion and a thousand people came versus we had a lunch and only 12 people showed up, but wow, was that valuable for them and hopefully valuable for the institution. And I am hopeful that as we think about programming coming out of the pandemic, that we can take advantage of the fact that we are all a Zoom link away. We don't need someone from Providence to come up to Boston, find the office to do the meetup, get the invite out, get everybody to come uh, you know, together. 
And then uh, instead, we can do that sort of thing across interest groups. You mentioned the impact areas that American universities focused on. And I think it remains to be seen, how do we logistically take an alumni engagement operation that historically was field-based, event-based, reunion-based, gala-based, and really convert it to a micro-targeted digital um, team, not because we had to during a pandemic, but because we want to, because it's the best way to both create value, but also hopefully uh, command value as it relates to philanthropic outcomes. I am with you 100%. And, uh, you know, and, and to be honest, being in the first year of a publicly launched campaign, I wish I could even spend more time. And, and my alumni direction, relations colleague and I talk about this, making the shift, because it's going to take some thinking. And there's there, um, but but the reality is here we're saying that we're an issues-based campaign. Um, therefore, the, the great thing about that is it means that there's an on entry point for multiple motivations for giving, which only increases your chance to get somebody excited. You know, when you think about a singularly focused, and I've heard this before, um, I, I've, I've heard even trustees say, why don't we just keep focused on scholarships and just do a campaign about scholarships? Well. That's great when I understand why they're saying it, but you're leaving out a whole population of people who might get more interested if you hit them where they're at. And that, that's what we're used to in the way we consume media. Um, so how do we do that in the university? And the answer is, to your point, the answer is not going to be highly curated, let's have flowers for the table, let's invite invitations, let's do those kinds of both cost-heavy and time heavy things. It, it has to be more about the substance and easier, easier ways to get together. And I also think that's where volunteers can do more. We don't have to, we can facilitate it. We don't have to control it. Well said. Time has flown by as I knew it would, but I have to ask you two final um, points. One being, when you think about mentors who've supported you along your journey or peers from the industry that you've come to respect and collaborate with, you mentioned Al Cecchio already, but are there other folks who come to mind? Oh my gosh. Yeah. I, I've just been so lucky to work with great people. And I, of course, I started by telling you how happy I am with the team I'm working with now, but I do have to tell you one story just because that's a fun one. And somebody who probably I've told her this before, um, but it, it's, it bears repeating for anyone who is looking for leadership. Um, early in my career in, actually it was at USC, I was hired without a boss. So I took, a, I took the chance of not knowing who the boss was gonna be. I was a executive director, but the associate dean was gonna be hired. And I, I worked in that job without a boss for a year because the dean was new and got to know the administration. And most of the administration in the business school at the time were men, but there was one woman um, and her name was Shirley, Shirley Maxey. And one day we were at a reception, a donor reception, and we'd been interviewing for the, my boss. And the, the vice deans with who I still stay in touch with, all men and Shirley, an associate dean, we, we're all talking around. They said, what'd you think of that candidate today? And I said, oh, I thought it was good. And they said, we didn't think so. They said, why aren't you going for this job? And I said, without missing a beat, oh, I'm not ready for it. I'm too, I'm, I'm not experienced enough. It has communications and marketing. I've never done that before. And um, 
a couple minutes later, Shirley pulled me aside and said, are you crazy? I think she said something even worse that I can't tell you on a podcast. Are you crazy? And then she said, you know, a man would never say that. <laughs> she said, they wouldn't. And I go, but I don't have experience. She goes, then you'll hire someone who does, uh, you know, uh, or experience on the, on the marketing piece. And it was a really good point. She's like, you have to, you know, you, you got to be able to stand up for your, for yourself. If you really believe you can do this. Yes, it'll be a stretch, but there's anyway, she gave me this piece two weeks later by fate, the Dean of the business school left. And one of those vice deans became the Dean. And he invited me to breakfast the moment that he became the interim dean and said, what should we do about this search? And I said, you don't need to search. I can do it. And so, you don't and think I you would have done that if it weren't for Shirley? I wouldn't have done it if it weren't for Shirley. And that, of course, that interim dean believed in me, too. Yeah. Um, so that I just I want to tell that story because now it doesn't mean that you should you know, sometimes people think they're ready for a job. I, I think you do want to be thoughtful. I think you want to learn everything you can before you take on a leadership role. I'm not saying that everyone deserves to, but, but this was a point where it really was about confidence. And she gave me that confidence and it changed the trajectory of my career. That is such a great story. I'm so glad you shared it. We'll make sure that Shirley at least gets that clip. Um, that's uh, super special. And I think uh, it's, it's very rare that we don't have a guest who can't pinpoint one of those inflection points. And, and so frequently it is linked to mentor, um, really sparking that belief. And so thank you for sharing. My last question is, is uh, twofold. One, if folks want to stay in touch with you, What's the best way to do that? And second, are you hiring or will you be as part of this campaign? Yes, yes, and yes. And even if uh, we are hiring, and it's an exciting time because it's coming back up again after freezes, and even if something is not up yet, I know enough about where we're going that if you reach out to me, I can help in that way. I also um, welcome, welcome anyone who found anything to be controversial or interesting or wants to know more, uh, welcome them to reach out to me at my last name, Searles at American.edu. They should mention Evertrue or this podcast and um, I'll be honored to get back to them. I love it. And also uh, Courtney is active on LinkedIn. Definitely uh, look her up there. And, and again, just when you do the connection request, mention that, uh, that you heard the podcast and wanted to connect with her. And I think you'll um, see why she's been uh, such an important voice and somebody who we wanted to make sure we could showcase on the podcast. And you're, um, I'm sold. I'm ready. I, let's go. Let's get this campaign <laughs> rocking and rolling. I, I uh, your, passion, your passion and enthusiasm is real. And I know after a million Zoom calls, sometimes it, it might be hard for that to show, but it shows. And so we wish you the absolute best and, and really can't thank you enough for sharing your perspective with our community. Thank you so much, Brent. We appreciate everything that you do too. Your, uh, your company is well-known, well-respected, and we appreciate what you do for the profession. I love it. Well, here, uh, change can't wait, and I wish you the absolute best, Courtney. All right? Thanks. Brent Bye -bye. signing off from McGregor, Iowa with Courtney Searles, the Vice President for Development and Alumni Relations at American University. Take care, everybody.